Well, good morning. It's good to be here this morning, especially uh, in light of my uh, past uh, week or so. Uh, I have spent the majority of the past uh, four or so days uh, in bed with the flu, which is why I haven't touched any of you this morning. And so, uh, no shaking of hands, anything like that. My wife is home with uh, Larkin because she is uh, now uh, caught uh, whatever sort of uh, flu that uh, I brought into the house. And, uh, and so, the, the past few uh, days for us have been uh, really difficult. Wednesday and Thursday in particular were uh, very, very uh, difficult. I just laid in bed all day, and, uh, and so I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a good sleeper, uh, but I spent uh, about 47 out of 48 hours just laying uh, in, uh, in bed. And, uh, and so, I couldn't eat. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't watch anything. I couldn't think. You ever had one of those headaches that's so intense that you can't think? Like, it literally hurts your head uh, to think. That's what I had going on. So, literally, my only option was sleeping. Uh, but because I'm not a good sleeper, I would, uh, I would wake up and uh, I'd just lie there. And so, uh, I'd lie there and I'd try to drift back uh, to sleep. But there were a number of obstacles uh, that kind of got in the way uh, from me actually getting uh, an opportunity to go back to sleep. First, uh, was this scurry of uh, squirrels. By the way, that's the technical term, a scurry. It's not a herd or a flock or a gaggle or murder or something like that. I wanted to murder the squirrels, but uh, that's beside the point. It's called a scurry of, uh, of squirrels. And they were on my roof, and apparently they were throwing some sort of elaborate Great Gatsby-esque gala up there or something like that. Uh, and so they just frolicked about uh, for 30 minutes or so, and, uh, and then they went about their business. And then the neighbor's dog decided that he was really upset that he didn't get invited, and so he started barking. And he didn't stop. Uh, for 30 minutes. And uh, so, literally just a dog barking nonstop, straight, uh, probably 15 feet or so uh, from my bed, just on the other side of, uh, of the fence there. And, uh, and so, how it didn't get hoarse uh, after 30 minutes of barking is beyond me. There's a corny dad joke somewhere in there about a dog becoming hoarse, but I won't make it. Uh, but uh, so, we had that going on. Uh, and then uh, after that, then one of the neighbor's kids who was just filled with the Christmas spirit went out and got on the swing set and started to swing. The only problem is the sound of that swing set is like someone opening and closing an ironing board that's really rusty. And, uh, and so for about an hour or so, that was the sound that I got to hear. And, uh, and so that didn't make sleep all that uh, uh, easy to come by. Uh, and then after that, someone came and uh, rang the doorbell, and, uh, and so I didn't get out of bed, and uh, then they rang it again, and then they rang it again, and so Casey finally uh, went and uh, opened the door, and the guy asked if we wanted to pitch in and help replace a part of a shared fence. What part of the shared fence, you might ask? A part that's not even on our, our property. And uh, so the answer to that was no, we don't want to help with that. And so these were some of the things uh, that made it really difficult for me to go to sleep. And so I just had to lay there, and I really had no choice but just to listen. Uh, that was my only option. And, uh, and so certain things I really love to listen to. Uh, I love to listen to just silence in the mountains. I'm an introvert, so I like that. Uh, I love to listen to like an ocean crashing. I love to listen to the sound of fire uh, that's crackling. I love to listen to my daughter 
uh, as uh, she's laughing or talking or uh, anything like that. I love a good sermon or a song. There's other things that I hate to listen to. The other day, Casey and I uh, were driving down the road, and we were behind this car, just looked like a normal Ford Fusion or something like that. Uh, But whenever it took off, man, it didn't sound like a Ford Fusion. It sounded like a 747. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, I thought, man, we must be at Daytona, but we weren't. We were on Harden. And, uh, and so they had had some sort of elaborate uh, aftermarket exhaust kit for some reason. And I didn't hate this person, but I hated the noise that his car made, and I didn't understand his life choices. And, uh, and so uh, there are certain sounds that we love. There are certain sounds uh, that we hate. Our passage this morning is going to concern this sort of idea that the rise Uh, The wise, the righteous, are those who love to listen to certain things. But as they love to listen to certain things, they also hate listening to other things. Not like the sound of uh, nails on a blackboard or anything like that. Not actual sounds. These are more ethical, moral things. The the righteous love reproof. They love correction. Uh, They love uh, to consider the words of the Lord. Uh, They hate bribes. They hate hasty speech. This is what we're talking about. Uh, We've talked before about Proverbs. One of the difficulty as we get to uh, kind of the the middle section of the book of Proverbs uh, is that uh, we find these short, pithy statements. And so unlike when we're uh, going through uh, the book of Romans starting in January, unlike that, we really don't have this main overarching, undergirding, just one main theme of our text this morning. Instead, there's really four or five or or six little opportunities for us to do little sermonettes, but there is one little uh, sort of idea that's woven through all of these uh, texts, and that is this idea of listening, that the the wise are those uh, who have a disposition, a disposition to hear and to heed the Word of the Lord, to hear and to heed godly counsel and correction, and to be accountable uh, to others, and unlike me, in uh, in my sick uh, sick state uh, over the past week, it's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's not like uh, they just don't have any choice. No, for the wise to listen, for the wise to hear, is a decided, intentional, deliberate thing that they do to posture themselves to listen uh, to the Lord. And so, well, let's spend a moment doing just that as we uh, take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. I'd ask first that you just pray for yourself, ask that the Lord would give you uh, eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Pray that for those around you, for your husband or wife or your children or your parents or a friend or a stranger, ask that the Lord would give us collectively as Parkway eyes to see and ears this morning, ears to hear. And then would you pray for me? I haven't stood or spoken or anything else in the past four days or so. The Lord would give me strength, courage, and boldness. So, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies, that You would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in Your Word, that You might unite our hearts to fear Your name, and that You might satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love, Lord. Help us because we need You. We want to hear from you, Lord, and so we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look, uh, we'll be looking in uh, Proverbs 15, uh, 26 through 33 this morning, 26 through 33. So starting in verse 26, 
The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. But gracious words are pure. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Last week we saw six or seven things that the Lord hates. And this week we see another, another thing that the Lord hates. If the idea, by the way, of God hating something or someone is distressing to you, let me encourage you uh, in two directions. One, to go back and listen to the audio uh, from last week. I think uh, Zach did a good job of unpacking how it is that the Lord can both feel uh, hatred and also love uh, for someone who is lost. Uh, And the second thing I would encourage you to do is to send us an email. We would love to sit down and chat with you and walk you uh, through that. Uh, But we don't have time to really work through it this morning. But the text says, not only does God hate the ways of the wicked, and in some sense those who do wicked things as we saw last week, but the very thoughts of the wicked, the plans or intentions of the wicked are an abomination, a horror, they're detestable, they're offensive. By the way, this is one of those passages that reveals to us something that uh, we hold to be an attribute of God, that is His omniscience. And so, uh, last uh, semester in our uh, theological equipping class that we have Sundays uh, at 9 a.m., we talked about the attributes of God. We talked about uh, the uh, omnipotence of God, that God is all-powerful. There is nothing uh, that God cannot do. We talked about the fact that God is omnipresent. Uh, that He is present uh, everywhere uh, with His whole being and able to accomplish His holy will uh, at, uh, at once. And we also talked about His omniscience, that nothing is hidden from the Lord. He knows everything that there is uh, to know. And this is one of those passages uh, that talks about that. He knows everything, your every action, word, and even thought, hope, dream, nightmare. And why are the thoughts of the wicked so abominable? In order to really understand this, I I think we really need to dive in for a second on the idea of biblical anthropology. That is, what does the Bible say about the nature of mankind? In order to understand why the thoughts of the wicked are so abominable to the Lord, we need to understand the ways of the wicked and the person uh, that is uh, wicked according uh, to the Scripture. That is the nature of man. We need to understand this concept of anthropology, the nature of of man if we were to answer that question. By the way, we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about anthropology next semester in our uh, theological equipping class. That is now the end of our teaser for theological uh, equipping. But the reason that the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination is because, biblically, the thoughts of the wicked are wicked. The thoughts of the wicked are wicked. All the ways of fallen man are corrupt, including his desires, his designs, his plans, his purposes. Man in his very essence is corrupt, is perverse, is despicable, is wicked, is evil. That's who we are at our very core. Again, we're going to spend weeks unpacking this and theological equipping uh, over the next uh, few weeks, but we talked about it quite a bit as we walked through the book of Ephesians a few uh, months ago, that man apart from Christ is essentially man-centered rather than God-centered. That's the essence of our rebellion. We'll see this again in Romans chapter 1. The essence of our rebellion is that we suppress the truth about God. We worship and serve the uh, uh, creatures or the creation rather than our creator. And so we are guilty of treason. All of our plans, all of our tensions, all of our thoughts are rebellious. We might not be plotting to burn down the kingdom, but we're not plotting to advance the kingdom, and thus that makes us traitors That's the essence of rebellion. You see, biblically, there's no neutrality when it comes 
to the kingdom of God. There's no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom. To be apathetic toward God is just as treasonous as it is to be an atheist, as it is to be antagonistic toward God. Biblically, our fundamental affection is that we either love God or hate Him. And our thoughts are a reflection of that reality. So the ways and the very thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. On the other hand, the contrast to that, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination, but gracious words are pure. To be pure biblically is to be free from impurities, uh, like gold that has been refined, uh, to have all of the uh, impurities removed. So gracious words are these words that have been purified, that have had all of the ethical, all of the moral impurities removed from them. All of the harshness that wounds others unnecessarily, all of the unrighteous anger, all of the lies, all of the distortions of the truth, all the calloused or gratuitous speech, all of these things have been removed, uh, is what the Scripture is saying. The idea here is that an evil person has evil thoughts and thus is abominable to the Lord, whereas a pure person has pure thoughts and thus pure speech, which is pleasing to the Lord. By the way, this, this uh, passage also helps us see this connection between our words and our thoughts and our hearts. That even though our, our speech might seem to be pure, that our hearts can betray us. God isn't interested just in our mouths, but our hearts and minds. You can have a relatively pure mouth, but not a pure heart. But that's not the goal. The goal is always to have this transformed heart that's going to uh, overflow into these transformed speech that is purified and thus gracious. Look in verse 27. Whoever, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Over the past month or so, as we've been walking through a few passages in Proverbs, we've seen uh, over and over again the importance of true justice. We've seen that justice is not this concept uh, that is just sort of ethereal idea, that justice is a concept that corresponds to truth. Uh, that you cannot have justice apart from truth, that justice should not be on the basis of someone's face. It should be on the basis of the facts of a case. It's not based on preferences or opinions. It's based on truths. So here we see this uh, another perversion of justice that is economic injustice in the form of bribes. This sort of uh, biblical idea of uh, economic justice is not just this sort of idea that just everybody has the exact same thing. It's not like uh, just Marxism or communism or something like that. It's really grounded in the Old Testament, uh, which would have these strong penalties uh, in the law for the false balances. So you'd say that something weighs uh, two grams, but really it weighs one gram. So you'd only give one gram worth of product uh, for it. And then you have all of these examples uh, in the Bible as well of this sort of idea that whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes uh, will live. Do you remember the, the story of Gehazi? Gehazi, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly because I don't speak Hebrew, but uh, Gehazi, G-E-H-A-Z-I. He was uh, the servant of Elisha. Do you remember Elisha, S-H-A? He was, the, uh, he was the prophet uh, that was bald that called down she-bears uh, to maul the kids. That's just my favorite story. And, uh, and so anyway, his servant uh, was named Gehazi, 
And, uh, and so uh, there was a, a particular story where a guy named Naaman, who was a foreign official, uh, he comes, he has leprosy, he hears about Elijah and all of the power uh, that Elijah walks in, and, uh, and so he comes to Elijah uh, and asks for uh, help healing him of his leprosy. Uh, and Elisha simply says, go and wash in, uh, in the river uh, Jordan seven times. Uh, and so uh, Naaman says, okay, that, that's absurd. There are much better rivers uh, where I'm from. And, uh, and so finally, though, he relents, he goes and he does it, and he's cured of his leprosy. And he comes and he asks Elijah, and he says, what can I give you? What can I give you uh, in return for what you have done for me, this great grace that you've done for me? And Elijah says, I don't want anything from you. And, uh, and so he, he goes and he leaves. Well, Gehazi, the servant, thinks this is an opportunity for me. And so he goes uh, after the guy. And he says, Elijah changed his mind. He would actually like, and he asks for some money and changes of clothes uh, and those sorts of things. This is an example uh, of this. As a result of his greed, uh, he is afflicted. He's troubled his own household. He is uh, greedy to his own destruction. Biblically, Gehazi was afflicted with leprosy. That's what this verse is saying, that those who seek unjust means of satisfying their lust will face consequences. Now, any form of greed, uh, any form of unjust gain is wrong. Other passages are going to talk about oppressing your workers and stealing, etc., but the focus here is on bribes which mock true justice and distort uh, the truth. It tips the scales of justice, not towards who is necessarily right, but toward those who are necessarily rich. What's interesting, I, I found this in studying th- this passage, I never knew this before, that the word for bribe uh, in, uh, in Hebrew is really flexible. Uh, and so, in certain connotations, it actually has a, a very positive connotation. Uh, it would be the words just similar to gift. It's something that you have given to someone. So, if you go over to someone's uh, Christmas party and you bring them uh, a dish, you bring a present, you bring a bottle of wine, you bring something like that, that would be the exact same Hebrew word as this word for a uh, bribe. Uh, so, in certain connotations, it's seen as this very positive thing. In other connotations, though, especially when there is this element of secrecy, it's not a positive thing. It's more like uh, the image of someone passing a manila envelope that's been sealed under a table at a dark Italian restaurant or something like that. That's how bribes are done, I think. Uh, I don't have a lot of opportunities to be bribed as a pastor, but… Uh, But that's the sort of idea there. So, the difference between a gift and a bribe tends to be the degree of secrecy, uh, whether it hurts someone uh, or something else, and or whether or not it perverts justice by influencing someone or something wrongly. But the word itself can be positive uh, or negative. Now, I don't tend to think of myself as greedy, and I would imagine if I asked everyone to raise their hand in here, I would imagine most of us don't think of themselves as greedy, even if you are actually like Scrooge at the beginning of the Christmas carol, you probably don't think of yourself as being greedy, uh, but there is a certain context in which I do find a profound amount of greed. Now, the Scripture says that a, uh, an elder should not be a lover of money, so what I'm about to say might get me fired, uh, but I think it's worth it to say uh, that when it comes to white elephant gift exchanges, I am profoundly greedy right? I will lie. I will cheat. I will steal. I will do whatever I can to not get stuck with something. My uh, in-laws 
have a uh, tradition the past couple of years. They've done this gift card exchange at the end of the rest of the, the Christmas exchange. Uh, and so they will go and they will buy 9, 10, 11, just uh, depending on uh, the number of really good gift cards. I mean, Amazon gift cards, a nice restaurant gift cards, things that you might actually want. Uh, and then with these 9, 10, 11 good gifts, they will take one envelope, the exact same size, and they will put in there a Little League baseball card for one of their cousins, all right? Now, I will do whatever is necessary to not get stuck with that baseball card because I don't want that. I would rather have a gift card. That is a context in which I find myself to be greedy for uh, unjust gain. I'm just going to bank on what we talked about last week being true. If it's not a lie to pump fake in, ba- uh, in basketball, like we talked about last week, that I'm going to trust that it's not greedy for me to lie and cheat and steal and all of that in white elephant uh, gift exchange. Um, before we were married, Casey's family visited Istanbul. This is a, a true story. Some guy came up to uh, Casey's dad and uh, asked her, uh, her dad uh, if he would be willing to give her to him for 300 camels. To which my father-in-law replied, how about 500? (laughs) Now, he wasn't actually bargaining there uh, in that moment. Uh, The guy could have come back with 5 billion, and he wasn't going to do it. Camels aren't his love language or anything like that. Uh, But the point was, uh, a bribe only works on something that's actually appealing to someone. My father-in-law doesn't need camels. He loves his daughter, all right? A bribe functions on greed. A bribe functions. It trades on the currency of lust, of craving, of this desire for more and better. That's how bribes and greed uh, overlap. A bribe only works by offering something which is desired more than that which is given up. A bribe trades on the back of lust, typically money, but anything really. And greed, according to this passage, troubles the household because it puts a stumbling block, it puts an obstacle in the way of true justice. Greed is this foolish path leading to death, whereas the one who hates bribes is on a path to life because he or she can be ruled by truth and not lust. So what does this passage mean for us? What do we do with this? Obviously, if you're a a businessman, if you're a judge, if you're something like that where you might actually have an opportunity or a politician might actually have an opportunity to be bribed, then then obviously there's a very explicit implication of this uh, text. But what about for the rest of us. Most of us aren't in positions where we're getting offered bribes under the table at Italian restaurants or anything like that. So, uh, but that doesn't make us any more out of the danger of greed, which is the real danger of the passage. So, the question is, are you greedy? You might not have the word, the word bribe might not be anywhere in your vocabulary, but I, am, uh, I imagine the word greed is. So, are you greedy? Again, most people would say no. Most of us, when we look, we would, probably we would do not as greedy as that guy. We probably know other people who are more greedy than us. I think this is an area where probably most of us are lacking in some degree of self-awareness. So I wanted to uh, throw out a few questions that I think uh, might be helpful for us. First one, how often are you thinking of money? How often do you think of money or bills or material possessions. When you have a few seconds, when you have just a few seconds or a few moments to allow your mind to drift, you're in the bathroom, you're in the shower, whatever it is, 
How often does your mind drift towards something having to do with money or finances? Do you regularly envy what others have? Is that a regularly, regular part of your rhythm of life to look at what others have and to want it, desire it, to covet it? When the latest iPhone comes out, do you feel like you just have to have it? Even though yours is currently working perfectly, the screen's not cracked, nothing's wrong with it. Do you ever think if I had just this one thing, I would be happy? Has that ever worked for you when you got it? Have you ever asked others what they think of the way that you use the gifts that God has given? Would others consider you to be generous and gracious and compassionate? Do you regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully give to others? And then this last one, I think it's the hardest. Is your ability to give dependent on your lifestyle, or is your lifestyle dependent on your decision to give? Let me read that again. Is your ability to give dependent on your lifestyle, or is your lifestyle dependent on your decision to be generous, to give? sacrificially and joyfully to others. See, the more that greed has taken root in our hearts, the greater danger we are of falling victim to this warning. Maybe not giving or accepting an actual bribe, but of being seduced, of being influenced, of being pulled towards something. And the pull of anything other than truth is folly and destruction. Let's look at verses 28 through 29. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. So the first verse here commends the self-control of wisdom. The wise and the righteous ponder, whereas the fool pours out. We see this contrast between reasoned and rash speech. The wise know when to speak and when to listen, but the fool just overflows with opinions. I told it uh, broke a few months back. I had to have Jerry come over and uh, help me to, to fix it. The shutoff valve was broken, and so it just wouldn't shut off. It just would continually run water, run water, run water uh, nonstop until I finally fixed it. I have to say that just to say that the mouth of the wicked is like my toilet. It just continues to go. Do with that as you will. Whereas the righteous ponder how to answer, fools just go on. They pour out. They go on and on. The righteous ponder how to answer. So why is that? Why do they wait? Why do they ponder patiently? Because they love and treasure truth. That's the meaning of the verse here. They would rather be informed than just win an argument. So when you're sitting around the family table over the holidays and your uncle blurts out something that he read online, what's your typical response to that? What's your typical Facebook feed or Twitter feed or whatever it look like? Is it rational? Is it reasonable? Is there an attempt at discourse? Is there an attempt to sit down over coffee and actually have a conversation that's meaningful and helpful? Or is it really just to throw out a few sign ba- uh, sound bites and to those who already agree with you to have them simply give it a like or a thumbs up or whatever uh, it is? Is the goal truth or is the, your goal winning at all costs? You know, I've won a lot of arguments that I've actually lost. The righteous delight to listen, but the wicked delight to speak. But according to this, these passages, when they do, when they do speak, no one is listening, for the Lord is far from the wicked. 
I uh, thought of this. When the wicked text the Lord, the Lord texts back, who dis? You ever seen that? That's what I thought of when I thought of this passage. We read about the Lord being far away and not hearing. We don't mean that there is too much wind and waves for Him to pick it up on His prayer radio or, or something like uh, that. That's part of the, the charm of Elijah with a J, his sarcasm when he confronts the prophets of Baal. If you remember that story, he confronts the prophets of Baal and he tells them, yell louder. Uh, your problem is maybe Baal's just asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's just uh, kind of busy concentrating on something else. So surely if you yell louder, <coughs> he'll finally uh, relent and hear you. And that works within Canaanite religions. That works within other sort of religions where the idea there is more of a physical versus a spiritual thing. But the distance that the Lord has between Him and the wicked is not a physical distance. It's a spiritual distance. It does no good for the wicked to simply yell louder. The fact that the Lord is far from and doesn't hear the wicked isn't a contradiction to His omnipresence or His omniscience the idea that He is everywhere and that He knows everything, but instead it's a revelation that His beneficence, that His goodness is uniquely available to His own, those who are contrite and humble and righteous by grace. So the Lord, there is a sense in which the Lord hears the prayers of the wicked. There's another sense in which He doesn't. He isn't ignorant of their prayers, but He does ignore them. It isn't just that he doesn't hear them, but there's a sense in which he hates the prayers of the unrighteous. I think we have Proverbs 15, 8 through 9 that we can throw up there. Consider this, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. So why does he ignore their prayers? Why would the prayers of the wicked be an abomination Because Proverbs doesn't envision the wicked as repenting. That's a fundamental thing we have to understand uh, about the book of Proverbs. uh, We'll talk about this uh, here in a moment, but uh, that Proverbs is going to view people as already being in covenant with the Lord. That for someone to repent would mean they're no longer in the category of being wicked. That that is the difference between the wicked and the righteous, is uh, is contrition, is uh, repentance. When the wicked cry out, it isn't out of humility and contrition. They're like Judas or Esau. The ungodly experience worldly sorrow, but not godly sorrow, which means that no one today can say, it's no use to pray because the Lord won't hear me anyway. Because biblically, the idea is if you repent, if you confess your need, if you confess that you are unworthy of His help, then surely He will give you His help. That is a promise. And for those of us who don't doubt His love for us, This is profoundly good news, this passage is this morning, because it means that He hears those whom He loves. He doesn't hear the prayers of the hardened and the calloused, but He hears the prayers of the humble and contrite, which means that there is a promise to our prayers this morning that the Lord will hear them and heed them. If the Lord doesn't just ignore the prayers of the unrighteous, if the Lord doesn't just ignore the prayers of the wicked, but they are an actual abomination to Him, then we can imply from that that He doesn't just hear our prayers, that He actually delights in them. He delights to hear the humble cries of His people. Friday evening, 
Larkin began to show signs of sickness. Larkin is my 18-month-old, if you're a, uh, a visitor, 18-month-old little girl. And uh, so she threw up all over me. I'm holding her. I hear her start throwing up. I just hold her like this, and she throws up all over me. She starts to run a temperature uh, later that night. And, uh, and so that evening, I kept the monitor on all night long. And every single peep, every cry, I got up, and I went in there, and I checked on her took her temperature and made sure she was okay. Why? Because I love her. Every single cry. That's what this passage is saying. The Lord acts that way for His children. He waits and He listens diligently. Not just one night in our sickness, but all of our lives. Let's look at verses 30 through 32. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. When Casey and I were, uh, were dating, we, uh, we actually never kissed. We didn't kiss until the, uh, the pastor said, you may now kiss uh, your bride. There was also something else that we didn't do uh, during that period, and that was we didn't say, I love you. So I had told her whenever uh, we first started dating, I said, I'm not going to say I love you until I'm ready to uh, propose to you, and I'm not going to kiss you uh, until we're actually uh, married. And, uh, and so that was the, uh, the idea. So I had this elaborate scheme and plan in my mind that when I was actually going to propose to her, I was going to say I love you, and that was going to be like this trigger, and instantly she was going to realize, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. There would be this gleam in her eyes and this moment of realization. The reality didn't work out like that. So I say, I love you. I'm ready. Like, I'm ready to see that look in her eye, the moment of revelation for her, and then get down on a knee and pull out a ring. Unfortunately, she is so convinced I'm not going to propose to her for a couple more months that she just assumes, I guess Jeff changed his mind. I guess he is going to say I love you before he proposes to me. And so there is no moment of revelation. And so I'm waiting for something, and she's confused by something. And so instead of seeing this gleam in her eye, I just see this dulled confusion. Now, we, we got through it. I eventually did get on my knee, and I proposed, and she said yes, and all of that kind of thing. But I was waiting for something that never actually happened. That sort of idea of light of the eyes is what this verse is talking about, that image of my hope for her to realize what was about to happen is what this means. It's the look in someone's face when they're excited, they're joyful, they're happy, they're delighted. That's what this passage is talking about. It's a gleam in the eyes, the look of joy and happiness and hope, and seeing delight in the eyes of those in whom you delight rejoices your own heart. Think about that. Think about a time that you've seen just an incredible amount of joy in your spouse or in a a parent or in a, a best friend or a child or whatever it might be. That's this light of the eyes idea. And if seeing joy brings you joy, then so does hearing of it. That's what good news is. If sight can be a source of delight, so can a sound, the sound of good news. Now, typically when you see the, 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 the words good and news together in the Bible, typically what it's talking about there is gospel. So typically uh, in, uh, in uh, the Greek, whether it's uh, the New Testament, which is written in Greek, or the Old Testament, which is translated into Greek in the Septuagint, you'll see the word euangelion. Uh, the translators have not translated this as euangelion, so it's not talking about the gospel in particular, although that is the greatest good news. It's just talking about good news in general, any sort of good news uh, in general. But in the context here, I think you could say the life-giving reproof 
an instruction leading to intelligence uh, that uh, verse 32 uh, talks about. So we've been talking about Proverbs for two months now, and over and over and over we've come back to this idea of life-giving reproof and rebuke and correction. Why is that? Why are we harping on it all the time? One of the reasons is because every passage is talking about it. It's kind of hard to pull six, seven, eight verses from uh, the book of Proverbs that don't talk about this idea because it's so fundamental and central to the overarching theology of the book of, uh, of Proverbs. We need to be reminded over and over and over again that our innate feelings, our opinions, our preferences, and our presuppositions are foolish, and that one of God's chief means for uh, uh, rooting those out of us is community. Others who look into our lives and are able to help us where we have blind spots. We need others to be speaking into our lives and having access, not just to some parts, but even the secret, deepest, hidden places of our hearts and minds. So whether you've been a believer for a few days or a few decades, there will never come a time until Christ comes when you're beyond rebuke, reproof, and correction, beyond the need for confession and accountability and community. And biblically, those who reject this idea those who have pockets or closets of their life that are unassailable, untouchable, inaccessible, they not only reject wisdom, but indeed life itself. Look at these verses, Proverbs 15, 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved, he will not go to the wise. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. 15, 10, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. That's just from the, this particular chapter. You could go on and on. So a willingness to receive correction is this litmus test. It's a shibboleth, if you will, of our wisdom. Whoever listens and loves the correction of the wise belongs to the community of the wise and thus can dwell among the wise. While those who despise discipline and correction cut themselves off from wisdom and thus life. So again, I think the question is before us, do you love correction? Are you a person that genuinely treasures the opinions of others as they speak into your life? Do you welcome that? Do you desire that? Do you long for that? Do you invite that into your life? Do you treasure it? Not only do you tolerate it, is it a delight to you? Do others know you? Do others know that you long for them to know you? Do others believe that they have a right to re rebuke you? Every week our staff engages in some degree of accountability with each other. Sometimes it's one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes we gather all together. Uh, we ask about ways that we're loving our wives. We ask about ways that we're frustrated or fearful, whether it's with work or home or finances or whatever it might be. We ask each other, what one thing has stirred your affections for Jesus most this week? It kind of changes each time. This month, we're asking each other this question. Uh, each week, uh, we're having different little uh, groups of one-on-one, -on -one, and we're asking this question. What do you see in me that needs to change? So we're sitting down with somebody, and we're asking them to basically rebuke us, to correct us, to reprove us, to speak into our lives what is the one or two or three or 10 or 12 or 15 things about me that I need to change 
Not like my haircut or grow a beard, which is what Zach always tells me, but I can't. Not those kinds of things, but what are the heart-level things? Where am I not being a good pastor? Where am I not being a, a good brother? Where am I not being a good son of God? Where am I not being a good friend? Where am I not being faithful in various areas? So imagine asking that of others. By the way, if that strikes you, if it strikes you as strange that a bunch of guys would do that, if that seems foreign to you or anything other than normal and good and healthy and right, there's a really good chance that you don't understand correction. You don't understand rebuke. You don't understand reproof. And you need to go back to the text or you need to ask us and we would love to sit down and walk with you through that if that seems weird to you. And sitting there waiting for an answer can be difficult. Imagine that. You're sitting there across from your friends, asking them, basically inviting them to tear you apart if necessary for your good without response, without explaining, without defending ourselves. But it's good because the wounds of a friend are faithful. And the ultimate goal is not that I'm better than Zach or Carl or Tim. It's that I'm better than I currently am. It's that I look more like Jesus tomorrow than I do today. And biblically, I know community and correction are two of God's most precious chosen means of grace to that end. So the wise believe this. The foolish don't. Which are you? Let's look at the last verse, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. What wisdom teaches is the fear of the Lord. If you want a summary of the book of Proverbs, it's this. The wisdom, wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Every single verse of this book is about those two themes interplaying with each other. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord. This saturates the book. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. We could go on and on with dozens of other passages that say the same thing. If you want to know why we took a break between preaching through books of the Bible, it was really to drive home these three points that we see uh, throughout the book of Proverbs. First, the necessity of the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge and the hatred of evil and a fountain of life. If you want to know the meaning of life, it's this, fear the Lord. That's it. Fear Yahweh. Not terror, but reverence worshipful love and affection that affects your entire life and overflows into everything. All kinds of implications and applications flow out of that in regards to how we think of our leisure and our finances and our friendships and our work and on and on we could go, the things that we've talked about over the past few weeks. Literally, all of our life should flow from this fear, this reverence of the holiness and goodness of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, that knowledge and wisdom flow from this fear and are not innate. We've spent the past two months saying over and over and over again that this fear and this wisdom is not something that is innate. It's not something that you're born with. You're born with foolishness. Something that is given to you as a gift is wisdom, but it's something that is learned over a lifetime of 
reflection upon the Scripture within godly uh, community. We've spent months talking about this. Your feelings and your assumptions and your presuppositions and your opinions are not authoritative unless they're tethered to the Word. Imagine, uh, if you will, I thought of this illustration. Imagine, if you will, you're, you're on a plane or you're in a car and you buckle your seatbelt only to find that one of the ends is not actually tethered to the plane or to uh, the car. It's just kind of floating. How secure are you? The seatbelt's fastened, but it's not actually tethered to anything, so you're not tethered to anything. Likewise, if your thoughts and your opinions and your presuppositions and your presumptions aren't tethered to truth, then you're not safe. That's what the Bible has been saying over and over and over again. Like that uh, seatbelt, they're worthless. So third thing, in light of this, the importance of humility. The recognition of your own need should drive you should drive me to contrition and repentance and to search for wisdom and truth and knowledge outside of ourselves. And the irony is that those who most humble themselves are most honored, according to this verse, while those who honor themselves are most humiliated. In the context of the surrounding verses, we could say that the one uh, most with the most uh, one of the most clear evidences of humility is a willingness and even eagerness to receive. Uh, rebuke. The only obstacle to you receiving correction and reproof is your pride. That's what this verse is saying. That wisdom is to fear the Lord, and those who fear the Lord trust His Word. They walk in repentance. They seek to bring their entire lives under subjection to His Word, and they open their lives to each other. I want to end this morning by uh, kind of reminding us of something that we've discussed a couple of times before uh, in Proverbs, and that is Uh, that nearly everything that we have discussed this morning assumes that one is already in covenant with Yahweh, assumes that one is already in covenant with the Lord God. This is not just mere moralism, just simply saying, you know, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and be better. This is assuming that you're already in covenant. The author is writing this to Israel with the assumption that they're in covenant with Him, whereas it was possible in the old covenant with Israel It was possible to be in covenant relationship with God and not be a believer. What is distinct about the new covenant, what is distinct about what we are going to celebrate here in a few moments as we have a baptism, what's distinct about this new covenant is the reality that to be a member of the covenant is to be a believer. It's to be in relationship with God. That's what this verse is already assuming. It's assuming that you're already in relationship with God So don't hear this text this morning as mere moralism. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and just about every other religion will commend humility, for example, the theme of the last passage. But only in Christianity do we find that humility is something that is actually beyond our natural capacity. We're so mired in sin that we cannot fear the Lord. We cannot overcome our greed or lust or pride. The law tells us to be humble, and yet humility is beyond us. So it's only in Christ that we see God condescend to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. That's the glory of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, perfect in holiness, perfect in knowledge, perfect in power, He unwrapped Himself of glory and He humbled Himself. And how did He do that? By becoming a man. Think about that for a second. Think about the implications of that. 
for Christ to become one of us was humbling. What does that say of all of your pomp and privilege? What does that say of all of the things that we boast in are humiliating to Jesus? Everything that we boast in is humiliation compared to what Jesus gives up. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is not only the heart of the gospel, but the heart of our celebration of Christmas this coming week as we testify to the reality that God became flesh and dwelt among us to do what we could not, to fulfill God's demands and to, to, to die for us so that all who would submit and surrender would live. And because humility comes before honor, one day this King Jesus who was humbled before men will be honored and exalted as He returns and reigns over all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus, who for us and for our salvation took on flesh, died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended on high, sits at Your right hand, reigning and waiting for His return. I thank You for that He is for us now, our wisdom and righteousness and life. I pray that we might learn to listen to Him as we read His Word and have our lives transformed by the glorious good news that He reigns and is coming soon. You're a good Father. You give good gifts. You delight to hear the prayers of Your people. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that You'd meet with us wherever we are. There are people in this room who need to be comforted this morning, who need to be encouraged. There are people in this room who need to be challenged, who need to be convicted. People in this room who are walking in deep, dark, hidden sin. People in this room who are maybe just, maybe it's not egregious sin, they're just blind. They don't have community. I pray that you administer to us all the diverse ways of these eight passages, eight verses of Scripture would Press upon our lives, Lord, that we might look more like your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.